encourage you to do that. You can stop by one of the welcome areas or the welcome desk uh, on your way out, and you can learn more about the life groups that are available. Uh, if you're part of a life group and you see somebody you don't recognize, invite them to your life group. They might be like, I've been coming to church here for 15 years. Hey, we're that friendly. It's all good. So I would encourage you uh, to do that. And I also want to mention that uh, as uh, we experience the growth we are experiencing, our desire is that everyone who can would uh, worship one hour, uh, grow uh, in life groups in one hour, and serve in one hour. And so as we want to see people plug into life groups and worshiping every week, we do need those who are committed to serving in our children's and student ministries uh, on either Sunday morning or Wednesday night uh, as well. A lot of our children's ministry uh, volunteers, some of them are moving into student ministry. And so I know those at the boat uh, would love for you to go there to the children's check-in desk and tell them uh, you'd like to serve and begin that process in children's ministry. Uh, We've been having well over 200 children every week uh, with us on campus on Sunday and over 100 on Wednesday night. And so that takes us as a church saying, hey, we're all in. And so uh, please uh, encourage you to serve in that way. Well, uh, this past week, my wife and I had the opportunity to get away together, and whenever we get away together, uh, we miss our children, of course, and we miss you. I love you guys, and I miss you a lot, and you know, it is uh, interesting because one of my children said to me, uh, they were here last week, they said to me, "Um, Dad, worship pastors are more talented than senior pastors (laughs) because they can preach and sing, and I cannot sing. Um... And what I, would, what I said to him is, I've heard a lot of worship pastors preach, and it is not good. Uh, pastor Justin is not your typical worship pastor, and so uh, I'm incredibly grateful for him. Th- thanks for starting the clapping, Justin. Um, <laughs> I'm grateful for him. And truly, January, February, you have a lot of new people checking out your church. It's a hard time to take off as a pastor. And uh, I really uh, trust him and he delivered. And so thank you so much. We're continuing in our series called Centered. As we go through the book of Galatians, you can turn to the book of Galatians. And we're talking about gospel centrality, the need to keep the gospel central in our lives and the need to keep the gospel center in the life of the church. As, as I was doing some reading and listening to podcasts when I was, had some time away, uh, one of the things I listened to was giving some advice on preaching and it said, you really gotta take some time at the beginning of your sermon to help under, people understand why the book of the Bible that you're reading is relevant to their life. And so uh, here's what I'll say. A holy God who doesn't need anything, chose to create you and chose to speak to you. You're searching for direction in your life and these are God's words. That's relevant. And I would encourage you to receive what he has to say with humility. Paul has established in the book of Galatians that the gospel is from God and not man. The good news that Jesus Christ has come to make us right with God. The only way that we can be righteous is something that God has chosen to do, that God has determined. And any version of righteousness that we come up with or that somebody proclaims is, a, is man's version of righteousness if it is not in line with what God says makes us right. Anything more or less than the gospel is not the gospel. Anything that we add to the gospel or we take away from the gospel is not the gospel that has come from God. But Paul has told us in in Galatians chapter one how quickly we desert the gospel, how quickly we drift away from the gospel. And that's why he's writing to the church in Galatia, but that is also something that happens 
in America. So Paul is writing to address this issue of the Judaizers who are coming in and they're saying, hey, you have to do Jewish things if you want to be saved. And they're, they're saying that particularly because of the Gentiles who don't do Jewish things. And, and they're particularly emphasizing circumcision. And so then they question Paul's authority. And so Paul establishes his authority in chapter 1. But even when the question of Paul's authority is settled, another serious and threatening question looms among the Galatians and those who are hearing what seems like two different messages. Is there disunity among the apostles? Is there disunity among the church leaders? Because the Judaizers claim to represent the apostles in Jerusalem, but their message does not match Paul's message. And so there's this debate on whether Christians do have to do these Jewish things or not. Because the gospel is the fulfillment of the Old Testament. That's why Paul explains what has already been settled. Chapter 2, verse 1, he says... Then after 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas, taking Titus along with me. I went up because of a revelation and set before them, though privately before those who seemed influential, the gospel that I proclaim among the Gentiles in order to make sure I was not running or had not run in vain. Paul is referring to what takes place that is recorded in Acts chapter 15. In Acts chapter 15, verse one, Luke writes, some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. They're coming to these Gentiles who didn't grow up in these Jewish customs, so therefore we're not circumcised, and they're saying, hey, if you wanna be a part of the church, you have to be circumcised. And so this is a barrier to church growth to tell grown men they need to be circumcised. So Peter says in Acts chapter 15 at the Jerusalem Council, God has spoken to me and he's shown me that the Gentiles can be saved. And James, the half-brother of Jesus, now the leader of the church in Jerusalem, says the Old Testament says God wants to save Gentiles. You see, this is not new revelation that's coming to the church. This is the same thing that was said to Abraham. God did not tell Abraham there will be a blessed nation. He said, through you, all the nations will be blessed. And so we know that this is the fulfillment of God's word. So then a letter is written by the church in Jerusalem to the Gentiles. And Paul and Barnabas carry that letter with them as they do ministry among the Gentiles. In verse three, Paul says, but even Titus, who was with me, was not forced to be circumcised, though he was a Greek. Paul says, even Titus, who's a leader in the church, didn't have to be circumcised. Now, as a pastor, I sometimes feel like people know too much about my business. This is too much information about a preacher's life. Hey, this is Titus, you know, the uncircumcised pastor? That's, that's a lot. But the reality that Paul's establishing here is that even if Titus, who would become a pastor, who's a leader in the church, wasn't circumcised, then you clearly don't have to be circumcised to become a Christian. Verse four, he says, yet... Because of false brothers secretly brought in who slipped in to spy out our freedom that we have in Christ Jesus so that they might bring us into slavery, to them we did not yield in submission even for a moment so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. This is the reason that Paul is writing to the Galatian Christians, to show them that there are false brothers who are saying all Christians must become Jewish. Now notice they're not saying all Jewish people are Christians. There is this 
belief amongst some believers that everybody who's of Jewish heritage automatically gets a pass into heaven aside from Jesus. That is inconsistent with the teaching of the Bible. And that's not what even this legalistic crowd were saying. They were just saying that if you come to faith in Christ, you have to do all the things that Jewish people do. And so they're particularly emphasizing that you need to be circumcised if you are going to be saved. And the group who is spreading this message are from Jerusalem, where honestly, it was probably the right thing for Christians to do Jewish things, because that would bring them the opportunity to share the gospel. They're Jewish, and so if they kept doing a lot of the Jewish things, then they have an opportunity to explain to the Jewish brothers and sisters, hey, Jesus is the fulfillment of this. But that is very different than teaching a Christian must do these things or can't do these things. Now, there's a great tension when it comes to the gospel. The gospel tells me all I have to do is trust Jesus and I should change. Like all I have to do is believe in the gospel message and I should change. But what happens is we begin to make extra rules to this. I remember when I was a student pastor and the church I was serving was involved in missions efforts in the country of Brazil. And so we went to Brazil, we flew into the city of Manaus and then we got on the Amazon River on a little boat and then we would go down that river into tributaries which are bigger than some rivers and we would take John boats to these villages that were very remote and some, in fact, some of them you couldn't access except for by boat. And what I noticed is we would go into the, and it was so hot and so humid because you're on the river and I noticed that a lot of the pastors and the deacons and the spiritually mature men in these fishing villages in the middle of nowhere in Brazil were wearing suits to church because someone, some American, had taught them somewhere at some point, hey, if you really love Jesus, you wear a suit to church. Now, I was 24, and I know some of you think I just say what I think all the time, no matter what, and that's not entirely accurate. I didn't really say anything. If I ever go back, I'm buying a bunch of Columbia shirts. I'm taking those to my brothers and saying, you are free because of Jesus Christ. You do not have to sweat in church. <laughs> but we do that, some of you. I love you. You've been coming to a First Baptist church like this one or this one for a long time, and you believe or have believed, if you're a Christian, there's kind of a dress code. There's a dress code on Sundays. We wear our Sunday best. I'm not saying you can't wear your Sunday best, but if you think that that makes you stand anywhere closer to God, you are confused about what the gospel is. Some of you, it might not be that, but it's politics. I'm not saying that there aren't certain things that I think a Christian should view and vote in that direction, but being a registered Republican doesn't make you stand right before God. Some of you, it's alcohol. Something that really just invented in the 1850s in the South. But you think that's a marker of spiritual maturity if you don't drink alcohol, which if you went to Europe and hung out with the believers, they would think you are weird. Or some of you, maybe it's you kind of drifted into the certain direction because you wanted to be spiritually mature and you learned about tongues and so you begin to think mature believers speak in tongues. Now, all those tongues seem to... In, be the same kind of tongues that have only existed since about 1900 in California and the Zusa Street Revival, but still you begin to say that's the measure of maturity in Christ. 
Or you might say you have to be baptized in the Holy Spirit to be saved. But that baptism of the Holy Spirit all looks exactly the same in a certain way. Or maybe it's a theological view, and I'm not saying you're not right about your theological view, but you think anybody who doesn't hold that theological viewpoint can't, can be saved, can't be saved. Or maybe it's baptism. Hey, in the Bible, baptism of an infant does not exist. We proclaim believers' baptism because we absolutely believe that's what happened in the Bible. We believe you should follow Jesus and get baptized as a symbol of your following him. But it's not what saves. And if we think that anyone who hasn't been baptized that way isn't saved, we're drifting away from the gospel. Maybe a certain way of taking Lord's Supper, which we should be doing, or taking Lord's Supper, but you begin to think this. Or maybe you begin to think because that mistakes that person's made, they can't be saved. Or because the mistakes they're still making, they can't be saved. And I could list this for our entire series over the next three months. And again, some of these things are things Christians probably should do or should do. But some of these things are contextual and none of these things save you. And the spirit of the message that was being communicated by the Judaizers in Galatia is that you must do this or these things to be saved. And Paul says, we did not give into that even for a moment. Paul and the apostles would not submit to this teaching or this version of the gospel. In chapter one, verse seven, he said, not that there is another one, not that there is another gospel, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. If Paul had given into the demand of these false brothers, the gospel would have been distorted. These false brothers were using their own regulations with their own spin to show their holiness and were holding everybody to that standard. But an honest look at the laws shows us that it is impossible for us to be holy by keeping the law. That's a part of the purpose of the law, to show us we can't be holy on our own. So they're not fully relying on the law. No one who says the law makes me righteous actually really follows the law. And what's happening more seriously is they're then taking the focus off of Christ by how they're defining spiritual maturity. And that's the first thing that I wanna establish this morning. Saving faith is wholly focused on the person and the work of Jesus Christ. Saving faith is wholly focused on the person and the work of Jesus Christ. I'm not saying there isn't some type of faith that exists, but faith is only as strong as the object in which it is placed. And faith that saves is wholly focused on Jesus Christ. And any requirement that causes us to rely on our work and not Christ and his work is the end of the gospel. The good news to the world is that right standing before God was totally paid for by the death of Christ on the cross. And righteousness can be enjoyed through faith in him. I had the opportunity to go and visit some of my family members this past week. And one of the family members I got to see was my great uncle. I'm not saying he's like a great uncle. I mean, he might be, but he's my grandmother's brother. That's what I mean by that. And I had heard that this man, there's not very many professing Christians in my family. This man had given his life to Jesus and been baptized in the past year in his 70s. And, and he's recently experienced a you know, terminal diagnosis. And so I got to spend some time with him and, and his tear, tears just flowed to his eyes as he talked about the grace of God on his life. 
And as we talked more, he talked a bit, a bit about his regret of not being serious about God up until that point. And, and you could hear a little bit of doubts that creep in because of the life that he's lived. And now he doesn't really have the opportunity to live in response to Jesus. And, and then, you know, another family member said, but you're good because you're just such a good person. And he's like, no. And, and, and what he ultimately understood was that even though I lived this life that really did not acknowledge God, God has saved me. Do not give into anything that says anything else or into anyone that says anything else. Do not give in to this idea that because of the life you've lived, if you can't make up for it now, you're not good enough to be with God. Don't give in to the belief that because of the mistakes you are making or will make, that you can't be righteous. But also don't give in to the lie that you're a good enough person. Don't give in to either one of these lies. And there will always be persuasive people who are trying to tell you otherwise and trying to pull you in their direction. Two weeks ago, I shared this diagram that we made up that, that explains kind of how we drift away from the gospel. And we'll show that again now. At the core of a believer, a Christian's life, is this idea that the good news is that God has sent his son to atone for our sins and we are made righteous, not based on our ability to keep God's law, but on God giving us righteousness. Imputed righteousness is the theological term. But what happens to us is we begin to have a little bit of insecurity or doubt as we look at our life and our ability to live for God. And we tend to drift in one of two directions, either to lawlessness, where we begin to say, but, but I'm good. And people are saying, you're good. You don't need to always think about how much you're a sinner because you're good. And so that's where we have progressivism, where it begins to say, we don't really need to be that concerned with the things God says are right and wrong. We just need to, to love and, and we need to evolve and we need to constantly be just holding this new standard of love and not looking to God for that because we're good. We're innately good. Or maybe it's pragmatism where we begin to, you know, kind of medicate that guilt and that doubt and that insecurity by saying, but, you know, I can keep the 10 steps to financial freedom or I'm doing the love dare or whatever it might be. Or maybe it's meism where we're really taught just, hey, follow your heart. You do you. You live your best life. And see, that kind of gets rid of all that insecurity and doubt. Or maybe it's the other way where we are like, I'm not good enough. And so somebody's like, oh, you can be good enough. Do these things, moralism. Keep these standards. See, now you can feel good about where you stand with God because look at all the things you're doing. And you begin to look down on those who aren't doing those things. Or, or maybe it's spiritualism and it's like, yeah, I know you have that doubt and insecurity, but hey, come experience God with us. And we begin to have to have this high every single Sunday morning when we get together. And if the worship leader isn't bringing it, he's not anointed. And we begin to base our righteousness on these experiences and we have to keep going further and further until we get pretty wacky. Or maybe it's intellectualism where we become a bookworm and we study these things and, and now our righteousness is based on our ability to articulate complex theological viewpoints. And now we feel good because we're so much smarter and so much more learned than these other people. And people will constantly be trying to pull you in one of these directions. My 11-year-old daughter was telling me that, you know, she watches YouTube even though... 
I hate when YouTube is on the TV, but all my children watch it, so it's okay. And, um, and I watch sports, and nobody really likes that. So anyway, it doesn't matter. Um, okay, I do kind of like when they watch sports on YouTube. But anyway, I'm getting besides the point. Here we go. And she was telling me about Christian YouTubers, right? There's Christian YouTubers. And she was telling me about one particular YouTuber who says, hit subscribe if you love Jesus. This adult is telling my 11-year-old daughter, if you love Jesus, you will subscribe to my YouTube channel. It may not be that blatantly obvious, but I'm telling you that there are pastors and influencers and speakers who are saying, if you love Jesus, you will do what I do. You will do church the way that I do church. You will believe things the way that I believe and all these things. And what we have done here is we've said, subscribe to what I'm teaching or you aren't a Christian or you don't love Jesus. And we begin to look down upon people who are saying otherwise. That's a distortion of the gospel. I want you to look at what Paul says in verse six. From those who seem to be influential, God agrees with the fact that that's a distortion for the gospel. <laughs> and from those who seem to be influential, what they were makes no difference to me. God shows no partiality. Those, I say, who seemed influential added nothing to me. We see another major reason that Paul stays grounded in the gospel. He's influenced by God and not man. Even these influential people. Beware of pastors. I'm a pastor. Beware of influential people. God doesn't show partiality based on gifting or charisma or talent or whatever it may be. God isn't on anyone's side. God is on God's side. I love this encounter that Joshua records for us in Joshua chapter five, verse 13 through 15. It says, when Joshua was by Jericho, because he was going to fight the battle of Jericho, he lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, a man was standing before him with his drawn sword in his hand. And Joshua went to him and said to him, are you for us or are you for our adversaries? This would be a messenger of the Lord, we learn. And he says, hey, are you on our side or are you on their side? Are you with our church or what that church believes? God, are you with our political party or are you with their political party? And here's what the angel of the Lord says. And he said, no. But I am the commander of the army of the Lord. The messenger of God says, I'm not on your side and I'm not on their side. I'm on God's side. Now I have come. And here's what Joshua does. Joshua fell on his face to the earth and worshiped and said to him, what does my Lord say to his servant? And the commander of the Lord's army said to Joshua, take off your sandals from your feet for the place where you are standing is holy. And Joshua did so. We'll talk about this more later in our series, but this is the response as a Christian when we understand who God is. When we are in his presence, we are in holy ground that we are not worthy of standing. And when we test a leader or an influencer, we need to ask, where does their allegiance lie? Abraham Lincoln was asked about some advisors, by some advisors, about, you know, the potential of the union having success. And one of Abraham Lincoln's advisors is noted to have said, God is on the side of the union. And Abraham Lincoln responded, sir, my concern is not whether God is on our side. My greatest concern is to be on God's side. 
for God is always right. You see, saving faith is wholly focused on the person and the work of Jesus Christ. That's the gospel that has come from God. It is not from man, it is from God, and that is where we must be centered in our lives and as a church. And Paul's appeal is for the Galatians to not please man, but to serve God, and for the gospel to remain central in their lives and ministry. And that is why he is explaining what has already been settled. Look at verse seven. On the contrary, when they saw that I had been entrusted with the gospel to the uncircumcised, just as Peter had been entrusted with the gospel to the circumcised, for he who worked through Peter for his apostolic ministry to the circumcised, also through me, for mine, to the Gentiles. And when James and Cephas and John, who seemed to be pillars, perceived the grace that was given to me, they gave the right hand of fellowship to Barnabas and me, that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. You see, Paul's explaining, Peter and I had different ministries. There were differences in what we did, but the message was the same. The second thing I think we should note this morning is that gospel methods are adaptable. The gospel message is not. Gospel methods are adaptable. The gospel message is not. There are adaptable methods. Timothy would be circumcised for his ministry. Titus was not. Some could eat food sacrificed to idols. Some should not to advance the gospel. Alcohol is a stumbling block in some context. It's not in others. Ministers should dress in a way that brings them advancement of the gospel. I remember whenever the Lord brought us here about five years ago, I was a church planner, very casually dressed on Sunday mornings, and I, and I came here, and I was like, okay, I'm going to First Baptist Church of Niceville, and how do I dress? And I show up, and one person's wearing a suit, and the next person's wearing some hey dudes and some khaki shorts, I don't know how to dress, you know, I don't know what to do. And I'm no more clear now because I've, this is a confession. I used to change shoes in between the traditional service and the contemporary service. <laughs> but our senior adults bought me a pair of Jordans for my five-year anniversary. So now I don't know what to do. I mean, you just, as a minister, you try to dress in a way that you think will put the attention on Jesus and relate to people and, and, Show, hey, you're just like them. When it comes to worship style, man, there are people here who think that we shouldn't sing a song if it wasn't in the hymnal that their grandmother had. And there are people who want us to sing the name of Jesus only for 10 minutes straight. People who want it to be bright and people want it to be dark. Justin's got a tough job and they let him know what they think too. When it comes to programs, we always say programs don't make disciples, people make disciples. Some of you, you would drive five hours to find a church that has a wanna, unless there was a travel ball tournament that weekend, but that's okay, that's another sermon. Um, but some of you, you're like, hey, I just want it to be organic. Some of you are like, hey, this curriculum that comes from Lifeway, the Apostle Paul wrote it. <laughs> and some of you are like, we're only reading the words of the Apostle Paul. And the reality is these things are adaptable, but the common implications of the gospel or not. And in Acts chapter 15, they say, hey, they're welcome. Just remind them, don't be sexually immoral, don't drink blood, and don't eat with the idolaters. We think those are pretty common implications of the gospel, right? Like, stop being sexually immoral, because that was common in Gentile culture. Probably shouldn't be drinking blood anymore. And, you know, don't 
they're saying don't eat and sac- you know, as it is idolatry, not, you know, because Paul would clarify, you can eat meat that had been sacrificed to idols, but don't participate in idolatry. And here Paul says, hey, here's what they asked us to do. Verse 10, they asked us to remember the poor, the very thing I was eager to do. You see, we've got some differences, but we agree on the gospel and we agree on its implications. We believe we will be transformed by the gospel of Christ. For example, the gospel places the poor on our hearts. The point is, the apostles were agreed on the importance of ministry to the poor because it flows from the center of the gospel, the cross, and because Jesus lived it out. So the apostles were eager to bless the poor regardless of their context. It was a part of their foundational ministry. I assume, therefore, it should be a crucial commitment in the church today, in missions, and in the ongoing ministry of the church. Some would criticize and say a lot of what we do in our community and beyond enables some people, and I would say, you're right. But actually helping the poor is worth the fact that we will enable some people. And so you see, there's a tension here. There should be this fruit of the gospel. There should be this transformation that is taking place. And you know, I love you, and some of you have a family member, and they got baptized when they were young, and they haven't had anything to do with God or church for 40 years. And there's a very likely possibility that that person has not experienced the transforming power of Jesus. But as I say that, you, you might say, wait, wait. So are you saying their works are what saves them? Is, is that what you're saying? And that's not what, what I'm saying. But then who says what saves? If, if we have someone who's, who 40 years ago gave their life to Christ, they haven't really done anything with it, how can we measure up whether or not they are saved? And, and this is the tension here, right? Because Christians should be transformed But then those transformations aren't the things we look to that say, this is why they're saved. And so there's this tension. Christianity, I think I said this two weeks ago, I know Pastor Justin said this last week, is a response. And we cannot, as Christians, drift away from that response. Look, when I compare other churches, I don't understand why in the world you would want to go to a church where here's how they decide what we're gonna teach. In January, we're gonna teach on resolutions. In February, we're gonna teach on love because everybody's thinking about love or how they don't have it. In March and April, we're gonna talk about giving because we have the small window to do that. Then we're gonna do Easter. We're gonna teach a series on the basics because all these new people who say, you know, they like Jesus come to church on Easter. Then over the summer, we'll preach to the Bible because not that many people are coming again. And then back to school, we gotta talk about priorities. And then let's just figure something out to talk about in October, November, maybe money again. And then in December, let's talk about Christmas. And that's what we do every single year. And it's some dude's version of it, an opinion of it, and he's probably ripped off some other sermons. I don't get why in the world you would go to a church and that would be what feeds you. But let me explain something to you. Just because we go through books of the Bible doesn't give us any standing with God that they don't have, whoever that might be. It doesn't matter how we do church. I'm not saying there are some right ways and there's some wrong ways, but the reality is while we might think we've arrived and done some things well, none of that makes us any more righteous. And when we begin to think the way that we do church makes us righteousness, we have completely missed the point. When we begin to think the fact that we are so much more Christ-like according to our standards and according to our friend's standards than our friend who seems to not do anything with Jesus, but loves Jesus, when we begin to think that is why we are right with God, we have missed the point. And so there is this tension. We should be transforming. We should be doing these things, but they 
are not what saves us and they should never be the central point of what we do as a church. We cannot be the Bible-based church without being the Jesus-saved church. And us being focused on the Bible as a church, church, could just be a source of pride if we are not deeply humbled by the fact that it doesn't matter that there are people out there who I don't understand how they can do those things and not be Christians. What matters is how could my Savior love me, a sinner condemned unclean? That is what is growing in my heart, and I hope that is what is growing in your heart. And so I want to dig into his word because he has dug grace into my heart. I hope that's your response and that you're not drifting towards legalism or you're not drifting towards lawlessness, the reaction to that, which says, hey, I'm just gonna do what I wanna do. But there is this tension that does not go away. And so my third point, I gotta wrap up. Remaining gospel-centered creates a tension that will never go away. It has to be dealt with. The fact that Paul went up to Jerusalem by revelation teaches us that Christ wants us to confront disagreement head on. If we're gonna be a biblical people, we must be a confronting people. If we think someone is wrong or if we think the ministry of the church might be in jeopardy, we must seek God for grace to go to the person and lay them before them our position. Almost none of us does that naturally. It creates tense feelings and we just rather avoid it. But our desire for personal comfort and the fear of conflict, which hinder our confronting one another in love, do not spring from faith in Christ. They're not the fruit of the spirit. They're products of the flesh. And this kind of thing that we experience when we do not look to Christ for resources of power beyond ourselves. It seems to me that Paul's example here teaches us that it matters a lot whether Christians agree on crucial doctrines of faith. Look at verse 11. When Cephas, that's Peter, came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles. But when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. Peter's having a good time sharing the word, eating with Gentiles. Then these men from James, Acts 15 tells us they aren't actually representing him, come and tell him, hey, you gotta stop doing that. So Peter fears the circumcision party, which sounds like the worst party ever. And he's slipping back into this emphasis that Christians ought to do Jewish things. Verse 13 says, the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. Hypocrisy is playing a part. It's either believing, not believing the gospel and saying we do, or it's believing the gospel and then not living based on the gospel because we wanna please man, which is what was happening here. Hypocrisy is rooted in a fear of man, trying to please someone, trying to fit in. And verse 14 says, but when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas before them all, if you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how could you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? He says, you're not doing all the Jewish things. And, and that's the reality. You're not gonna do all the things. And so how then you, can you expect them who didn't grow up in all the things to do all the things? They feel they need to be justified to do these things, by doing these things. And there is this tension away from the gospel when you begin to say, you have to do this, or you need to do this to be saved. Paul says, verse 15, we ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law because 
by works of the law, no one will be justified. For those of you who that grew up, grew up in the church, it's very easy to look upon people who come to church or who don't go to church and think you have it better than them. You've figured it out better than them. Paul's like, you know, I kind of kick everyone's tail at following the law. But that's not the measure. So this morning I ask you, where are we looking? What is the measure? What is the standard? And, and you can put that diagram up again. And there is just such an easy temptation to begin to look at our morals and say, that's what makes me right with God. Or look how spiritual we are, and that's what makes me right with God. Or look how much I know, and that's what makes me right with God. Or, or look at the traditions I keep and my church keeps. Or look at the rituals I keep. Or look how progressive I am. Or, or look how pragmatic I am in my life. Or look how happy I am in the things I've achieved. And to begin to say, this is why I'm good with God, but that is not the measure. We must look to the center, the gospel, and that is what makes us right with God. The good news of Jesus Christ. And I would suggest that many, perhaps in this room, perhaps watching online this morning, are full of doubt and insecurity because you continue to look at that outer ring and base your righteousness on that outer ring. And you need to know this. This is the last thing I want you to understand this morning. There is no guilt or condemnation in Christ Jesus. There is no guilt or condemnation in Christ Jesus. There will be guilt if you think you can keep the laws and they'll make you righteous. There will be guilt if you think I've got to be spiritual because we ain't always feeling spiritual to keep righteousness. There will be guilt if you think I've got to keep the rituals. If you think I've got to keep progressing. If you think I've got to make all the wise choices. There will be guilt. And I think this is a reason a lot of people have left the church. Because we lay this heavy weight on people by emphasizing these things and they just never measure up. Now, I would say to you, if that's you, if you've left the church, maybe you're coming back to church, maybe you're watching online because you've left the church, I would just say to you, man, there are so many problems with this church. But anytime I think about the problems I faced by being a part of the church, I just want us to be self-aware and realize we face much greater problems if we're left to our own devices, our own heart. And you are delusional if you don't see that and trust in God's plan for your life and commit to a group of believers. But I think we weigh, lay this weight on people by emphasizing these things. And you know what? If you look to moralism, you look to progressivism, you look to those things I've listed, there will be a weight on you. But then we look to the gospel. We look to Jesus who took that weight on himself. And there is no guilt or condemnation in Christ. I'm gonna close this morning by reading Romans chapter eight, verse one through 11, worship team, you guys can make your way back up. Romans chapter eight, verse one through 11. 
There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. I could just say amen right there. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemns sin in the flesh. In order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. For those who live according to the flesh see their set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law, indeed it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Those who rely on moralism or intellectualism or meism or pragmatism, you can't please God. You, however, believers, are not in the flesh, but in the spirit. If in fact the spirit of God dwells in you, anyone who does not have the spirit of Christ does not belong to him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the spirit is life because of righteousness. You get that? Even though there might be earthly consequences because of your sins, you are alive in Christ Jesus. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus Christ from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. This is the good news. This is the gospel. God has made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God. Pray with me. Jesus, may we respond this morning to the good news of who you are and what you have done. Whether that is for the first time in our life saying, I need you. Or whether that is someone who's a Christian who needs to wake up every single morning and understand we are righteous because of Jesus and just respond in love. May your spirit be at work in us now. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.